Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For, it's a, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you may you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Father, we do thank you again for this word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it means in its correct setting. Lord, that our application would be um, just according to your will. Lord, we do love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So Romans 13, naturally, we follows from the, the previous text that we've uh, been, been working through. Uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, sort of lay the foundation for, for the end of Romans. Uh, if you turn back with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That therefore is a, a transitional statement in, in, in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, in large part, not totally, but in large part, are mostly doctrinal statements, truths about uh, what has God done for us as individuals? Uh, how we stand justified in Christ through faith alone um, and a number of things dealing with Israel and the church and, and, and how do we get along with one another or why do we get along with one another in Romans 9 through 11. And he comes to 12 and he says, because of all of these things, it's, it's reasonable of you to give your bodies, your lives, your physical bodies, everything about you to God. This is a radical thought which is why he continues with the second verse and says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That word literally is transfiguration uh, by the renewing of your mind so that you would, um, I lost my place here. I almost have it. I think I was going by memory. Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, you, you offer your lives to God. The reason that we do this is because we think differently in Christ. As we walk with him, as we study the word, he begins to shape our understanding of the world around it. We're transformed, that we're changed from the inside out. Literally, uh, the word is from the word metamorphosis. Uh, it's to be transfigured. And so as we begin to change in Christ, a number of things happen. Verse, the five verses, Romans 12, uh, 3 through 8, begin to, to share that if you're in Christ, you've been given a spiritual gift. You've been gifted and equipped and and God has created you for a special purpose and that in Christ you're supposed to discover your gifting and, and to walk and, and to carry out, uh, to work out your salvation, to work out these giftings, put it to use. You offer something to the body of Christ. Uh, we have different giftings and all of us together, we make up the body. Uh, from that, verses 9 through the end of 12 uh, talks about this overarching theme of love that we looked at last week. The first half deals with how we're to love one another within the body of Christ. It looks a certain way. And then we're uh, to the more difficult things. It says we're to love those outside of the church. And from that passage flows this passage. How is the Christian to relate to the authorities that have been placed over them? Of all weeks that this passage comes up. We started Romans in January. 
and you guys can hem and haw, then I'm talking for me. You're not having to teach this. You didn't have to deal with this passage all week. I've been like studying, wrestling through this, this passage as our government shut down. I got caught up, discussions, debates. This week, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't have. This week, the affordable, what is it, the Obamacare, as he refers to, uh, I don't think it's derogatory, kicked in this week. Government shuts down. All of this stuff is going on. There's plenty of opportunity for debate. I like a good debate. So I wasn't afraid to, to jump in with a bunch of my high school buddies who think opposite than I do. And man, it's fun banter. And then in the midst of the banter, I'm like reading about this. But the one thing that's clear that I feel comfortable with today is I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Everybody is angry this week in our in our country. Everybody is pretty disappointed at the authorities over us. We might be disappointed over different things, but there's pretty much it's it's unanimous that we're there's a lot of people who are upset. And so I'm like, you know, I'm throwing hand grenades out into the argument, letting all the arguments get involved. Then all of a sudden somebody else throws a hand grenade in and I hook, line and sinker. And I'm like, ah, this is what I think. And I'm like, no, I need to stop. I just need to study. And I'm like, oh man, I really just need to shut my mouth and just not worry about this stuff. And I, I make it through the week doing really good. Then yesterday trying to get everything in my mind ready and prepared for this text I hear the mailman come, and I'm like, oh, I'll just walk down and go get the mail. I walk down and get the mail, and in the mailbox, there's a pink envelope. And I'm like, what is this pink envelope? California Board of Equalization. I'm like, I'm in trouble. Man, I broke. Of course, somebody says, hey, Gunnar, can I talk with you? I naturally think I'm in trouble. And I'm like, why is the state writing me a letter, and why is it in pink? I'm going to jail. There's something bad is going on. So, of course, I, like, just stop, like, fall on the ground in the driveway. What is this? I open it up. It's like playing Monopoly. We're sorry to inform you, sir, but you owe fire tax of $115. And I'm like, this rotten government, I want to rip this thing up. Who do they think they are? I pay my taxes. I do this. And now they want this. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, man, I failed again. Like, of all weeks, it, like, the Bible mentions taxes. And, and I'm like, I rate yesterday. The humor of God in this. Terribly convicting for me this week. I'm going to be preaching it myself more than anybody. So you guys are welcome for the ride. I, um, and this passage of all passages, this is one of my favorite uh, to call it my favorite passage in the Bible, this has been a very significant passage in the Bible as it relates to my life. Being a Christian uh, who is an active duty Navy SEAL wrestling with how does my faith in Christ fit with being a, a, a really in special forces, uh, putting real bullets in a real gun to, to do real combat type stuff. This passage was instrumental for me, helping to understand my role as a soldier and as a Christian. Ultimately, this passage led to my master's thesis dealing with pacifism in the Christian in combat, which now is working itself out in a a book to basically law enforcement and soldiers. I've really only in the past seen this passage from the perspective of one in authority and functioning in that capacity this week the irony of it all is i'm teaching through it so it kind of puts a different spin there there are truths to pull out of this from those in law enforcement those in politics those uh, in the military but then when we just kind of work through in large part this passage is dealing with the christian and how do they live and function under authority what's our role and so it was really a double whammy of all weeks that, that, that the news comes out with everything that we're going through to have to deal with this for me. And so with that, the very first thing that we see is the very first sentence. It says, every person 
is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, period. If you're a human being and you're here today, would you please raise your hand? Larry was the only one who refused to raise his hand during the last service. (laughs) He is is a human. So if you're a human being and you're reading this, it, it doesn't even say what your theological bent is. This is just truth. If you're a human, you're to be in subjection to governing authorities. We don't like this. I, I go, wait a minute. There's got to be an out. Subjection. That's a subjective word, right? What? What is that word? And if you do a Greek study on that word, you'll find out that this was... It is a military term dealing with a chain of command to, for, for a soldier to be in authority. Oh, and that, that makes it harder because doing 12 years in the military, I know all about chain of command. I know what it means to have a boss, but then between me and that boss, there's like five, six, seven different people that have a very specific order before him. That I can't just go to the boss and talk to the boss. I've got to go through so-and-so. And then if I get through so-and-so, then I can go to the next person. And if that next person, at any one time, those people can shut my, my whole desire to get to the head guy. Only in very few exceptions can I bypass the chain of command. So then I read this and it's every person, every human is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And the very next thing we say is, well, it must have been nice for Paul because he had really good government. He had people that loved him and cared for him and took care of all his needs and everything he wanted. Don't say that to anybody. <laughs> because if you study, you'll, you'll find out that the, the person in control is Nero. It's funny, there's, there's software to burn CDs and it's called Nero software. Kind of funny. Because Nero burned down Rome. He destroyed Rome. He slaughtered all kind of people. He was horrible. This was the authority and control. So we try to think back. But not our government. Our government was worse than that. Ah, be careful. I think of David. You guys remember King David? He, he was anointed king by God. Who was the king before David? It was King Saul. There was a period of time where... Saul was presently king. David was told by God that he was the next king. I forget exactly how much time was there. But during that time, King Saul wasn't the nicest guy to King David. In fact, he tried to kill David a bunch of times. A bunch of times. There there was an incident when Saul was in a cave and David came up and he cut his robe off. And his top commander said, kill him. God's given him his hands. And if, if I was David, I thought, yeah, you know what? I've been anointed by oil. I'm the next king. God set me up to. <laughs> and what did David do? He said, no. Even in fact, after he cut his cloth out, he sort of felt bad about it. He said, King Saul, I was in there and I cut your robe. And who am I to go against the Lord's, Lord's anointed? Then we turn to Jesus. If you would turn with me to John chapter 19. This one is the one that really kind of is convicting. So here's Jesus living under the authority of government, which he established. He has never broken any human law. I don't even think any of us can say that. Unless you never had a driver's license, you've never driven a car. Because you probably broke the speed limit. So you're guilty. You probably sped coming to church. (laughs) I'm talking to myself probably. So before I start throwing stones. But so here's Jesus. He never broke any law. And not only did he never broke any law. He never even sinned. And everybody sinned. We've we've been we're far enough in Romans to see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's a guy who's God in his humanity. He never broke a human law. He never broke 
I don't want to say a religious law. He's never violated any of God's laws. He is totally and completely without sin, without violation of human law. At the place in the story that we read, he's been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been abused severely. He's been flogged. I imagine he's bleeding flesh torn from his body. Likely he's got one of those type of black eyes where the eyes are like swollen shut. That we know that by the time the crucifixion starts, that, that flesh was torn from him. The Bible says you can't even recognize male or female. Brutal, heinous beating that he took. And he stands there before Pilate, who at this point, Pilate, as the one in authority, recognizes that this man has broken no law. He is innocent. He's desperately trying to get Jesus off of the hook so that he won't be crucified because he has this crowd basically yelling and screaming that a a riot is on his hands. The last thing Pilate needs is a riot under his authority. Because a Caesar wouldn't tolerate any sort of revolt. And so in verse 10 we read, so Pilate said to him, that's Jesus. You don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? It's like, Jesus, please work with me. I know you're innocent. I can find nothing to condemn you. I need something from you to release you. Don't you understand who I am? I can have you crucified. I can have you let go. I have the ultimate authority right now. And I imagine Jesus through his like blood dripping down, kind of look at him with a smirk in his eye and a smile. And he answers him, says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You can turn back to Romans chapter 13. If there was ever an instance in human history where an individual was wronged by human government, by human authorities, it would be our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we see from him his submission, his subjection to this authority saying, you know what? The authority that you have has been given to you by my father. I could undo this if I wanted to. And yet what did he do? He went up to the cross. And before we get too extreme, we need to sort of back up. And I would suggest to you that still today, present day in the United States, that we live under one of the best governments in human history. We have great, great freedom and privilege and rights that, that, that don't exist anywhere else. The fact that I'm here teaching the Bible that we were able to sing songs, bowing down to Christ. That's not something that's allowed in most places in the world. I, I should have, I forgot to do, I should have been on Google in between services because I know I'm going to get in trouble right now. Oh, man. Trying to put the pieces together in my head. Kate is her name. She had a baby recently. Kate, she's married to a prince in England, right? And uh, she had a baby, a boy. Prince, is his name Harry? So the Prince George. Oh, no, Prince Harry's the dad, right? See, I don't even care. Who cares? See, I knew it was going to get bad. I don't, the part I'm getting to is recently this kid was born. Did you guys see the guy that got dressed up, the town crier, to announce the birth of the baby? This guy was all decked up like he looked like a joker on a, I mean, not like literally like on a deck of cards, you know, the joker. And uh, he's there crying out with this piece of paper. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but one of the things he said that I heard that and I just cringed. My, you know, home of the free, land of the brave. He says, This child, our future king, and we are his servants, and we will serve him. Something 
And I'm just like, how can they say that? It's because I'm an American. Because we have this great freedom. Most people in history didn't live under what we live under. They either had dictatorship, were their subjects, certainly during the time that Paul's writing this, they, they had a limited amount of freedom, but, it, but if you stepped outside of that freedom, you'd be crucified. Paul was put to death because of his proclamation for following after Christ. All of the apostles, except for John, were put to death for following Jesus. John was the only one that wasn't put to death, but it wasn't because they didn't try. It was only because God kept him alive. They boiled him in a vat of water or oil. There's some debate. And he survived. And there was such great superstition that if somebody survived, that they wouldn't kill that person. So they exiled him. And so Paul writes very clearly, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Certainly the United States isn't mentioned in the Bible, but we are included with every person except for maybe Larry. <laughs> Submitted a DNA test to figure out if he's human. And, uh, but, but we are in subjection to those authorities that are over us, which at this present time is the United States government. Well, there are some exceptions. I know that there are some people, tribal people, that they have your own authority over you, but everybody has their authority. Period. And he goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. I'll be honest, this in my tiny little brain, this one troubles me. My brain seizes because how can this be? There is no authority. It doesn't say that most authorities from God. It says that there is no authority except from God, which means that all authority is from God. He goes on to say, and those which exist are established by God. How do we, how do we deal with this when we look at like Stalin, Hitler, um, Nero, the guy in question? I mean, there's been some evil leaders. And the first thing that happens to me is my little brain kind of freezes up and I don't get it. And so the first thing I think we're, we're drawn to here is the sovereignty of God. I don't understand. I'm not God, but God is God. God is taking responsibility for all authority. I don't understand how that can be, but his word tells me. So what that does, if I'm going to accept this truth as it's revealed in scripture, it forces me into his arms and say, Lord, I don't understand how this is, but I trust you and I know your character. I know your will. And so Lord, help me to, to honor you in the midst of whatever authority I find myself in. Now, the second thing that I see in authority is with, with God's establishment is that God judges nations. We see it throughout history that, that there were great nations that have fallen that God has used and then toppled if they got off course or they did something off. We, uh, the present government here, Rome. Rome was a superpower of the greatest magnitude during this time. I've got to be careful for the recording, but I want to say that Italy's a joke today. But Andre is going to like punch me next time he sees me, my dear friend that's Italian. But they're not the dynasty. They're, they're bankrupt. They're, nothing's operating. Their health care is a mess. Everything about Italy is a total mess right now. But during this time, they, were, they dominated the world. So we see that God judges nations. We see that God uses evil nations to discipline his people. If you can find the back book of Habakkuk, would you turn there with me? Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. If you cut your Bible in half, you'll hit the Psalms. If you work towards the back of the Old Testament, you'll eventually hit some prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, some other ones. Uh, these, these are the big prophets, meaning there's a lot of pages. Then you get to the minor prophets. Buried in the minor prophets, Habakkuk is there. And they're minor prophets because they're short in length. And if all else fails, you have the table of contents in your Bible. Don't be embarrassed to use it. That's how you learn where your, these books are. Habakkuk is one of my favorite 
prophetical books. It's already been quoted in Romans. Habakkuk is different than other prophetical books in that most prophetical books are there's a man, a person, a prophet. God speaks to them and then God uses that person then to speak to the culture in which he sits. Habakkuk is different because Habakkuk is more of a journal of this guy. He's this prophet. He's got questions. He he's calling out to God. God responds to him. Habakkuk asks another set of questions and God responds to that. And the book is over. We get a, a, a private look into the life of a prophet. And look how it starts. Habakkuk chapter one, verse one, the the oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet saw. He starts with two questions. The first is found in verse two, which says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? And will you not hear? I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. He says, Lord, I've been I've been calling out to you forever. There's violence, there's evil in my midst, and I'm asking you for help. And when are you going to respond? Have you ever been there when you've cried out to God and you just don't think he's listening? Well, multiply that feeling and then you'll get to where Habakkuk is. He doesn't even think God's hearing his prayers. Then he gets to the the second question, verse three, and he says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the right. Was this today's newspaper or is this? I'm sorry. For the wicked surround righteous, the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. He said, when are you going to respond? You're not hearing my prayers. How long are you going to make me look at all of this evil? He said, destruction and violence are everywhere. There's strife, contention arises, the law is ignored or it's ineffective. Those that are in leadership are evil. So when the law is applied, it comes out crooked or perverted. Wicked people are everywhere. And when are you going to do something, God? How can there be a good God if all of this exists around me? We've heard that before, haven't we? You've probably said the same thing. God speaks in verse five, says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wondered, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told, I imagine this prophet finding the highest place. I imagine somewhere like Masada, this huge fortress that overlooked everywhere in Israel, him going up high. And he's like, oh man, this is going to be good. Look at, I can see the Babylonians up there. There are wicked, horrible people. I can see the Assyrians. I can see Egypt down here. I can see present day Jordan. All of these, all of these horrible people that surround us. I see our wicked people doing things in our country. This is going to be good. Destruction's coming. I got the best seat in the house. This is going to be awesome. A bombshell is about to drop on Habakkuk. God continues in verse six and he says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians. 20 years later, Israel would go into into captivity by the Babylonians. These were a, well, let's just see what God says about them. That fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originates with themselves. They have no God. They are their gods and themselves. Their own power, their own might, their own military. Their horses are swifter than leopards and are keener than wolves in the evening. Say this is they have fighter attack planes that are faster than anybody. They can drop more payload on anybody than anybody else in the world. They dominate the land. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward, meaning that there's so many of them that their faces just blur together. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress 
and heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through like the wind. This is bad. And look what he says. Verse 6, I'm raising them up. They're coming up. God's using this people. It doesn't make sense, but he's going to use them to discipline Israel. But then it says, the second part of verse 11, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength, who, they whose strength is their God. You can go back to Romans. So when I look at this passage and I see every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. I don't understand. There's evil governments. There's good governments. There's governments that are better to live under than other governments. We're told as followers of Christ that we are to place ourselves in subjection to those governments. We know this because God has established every government. And so when I look at history, I see, okay, there's there's governments that God has disciplined and toppled. There are governments that have flourished. But why would we subject ourselves to these governments? And that's where we get to verse 2. Therefore, he's going to give us some reasons. <clears throat> he starts with a, a theological reason that we should subject ourselves to these authorities. He says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. He says, if you look at the authority that's been established over you and you resist it, you are in fact resisting your creator. That's a pretty stern sort of statement. Trust me, all week, I've been shaking my fist at the government, shaking my tax bill. Who do you think you are? Then I'm reading this going, oh, Lord, am I like coming against you? Like I like this is what it says. And it says, and and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He says in a. In a practical sense, there's a theological reason, but in in a practical sense, if you resist the authorities you better be prepared for the consequences. I have one little crime. I mean, I have a couple crimes. My worst, resisting evading arrest. They got, I was totally guilty. I'm a chaplain now, so I'm good. I've paid for clean records. It's not even on my record anymore, in fact, because so much time. So I've been a good boy for many years. I often get the year confused, and I say 2005. And then it's like, Gunner, it was 1995. It was a or yeah, 19, it was a long time ago. It wasn't 2005. You were a pastor then. But it's like when I ran, the government came down on me. There was a consequence. That's why when you're driving down the road, you could be going five miles an hour under the speed limit and you see a CHP and you hit your brakes. I have a cop friend that was going to work the other day driving from Marietta down. And she said it was so funny because I saw a CHP and I hit the brakes. And she's like, I'm in a patrol car. I could be doing 100 if I wanted to. I mean, she'd be breaking some rules. But she's like, I still see black and white, and my instinct is to, like, hit, hit the brakes. Slow down. Because we understand that the authority is there to kind of to bring safety to others. And so if you resist the authority, there's going to be, there's, there's going to be some blowback. Now, how to handle this text? I, I've been struggling with, thankfully, I had a practice the last service. There have been people in history who have resisted the authorities that have been placed over them from a biblical perspective. Because the Bible does give a number of illustrations where individuals, God has blessed their resisting of the authority. A couple of examples that come to mind are the Ten Boom family. They were a family that lived in Holland 
as as Hitler was coming to power and the Gestapo was coming and arresting Jews, hauling them away to concentration camps. And this family, as believers in Christ, said what they are doing is wrong. And we are going to resist the authorities that have been placed over us because we feel that what they are doing is violating biblical commands, clear biblical instructions. And so the family was torn on how to handle this. They'd created a, a secret room. Uh, one of the books that was written by Corey Ten Boom was called The Hiding Place. And the reason is they had a hiding place. There were two sisters that, that from the scriptures, they, they actually landed differently on the spectrum of how they would handle it. Both believed that they should resist the authorities. One was totally okay with lying to the authority about the Jews being hidden in their place. The other sister was not okay lying. She was okay hiding, but if authority asked her, she did not want to lie to the authority. And as the story plays out, both God kind of allowed them to honor their conscience. One never had to lie. The other one had plenty of opportunity to lie. They ended up as a family being taken into captivity and going to the concentration camps. All but Corey died. And Corey survived, and then she continued to tell her story. I look at Bonhoeffer. He was a pacifist pastor during the same period. He was of a family of substance. He, uh, he was sort of an anomaly in the family that he became a pastor. There wasn't a bunch of clergymen in their family. They, they had access to high levels in the German government. He didn't believe in using force. As the things started growing he came to the realization that he was no longer innocent if he just observed the jews being slaughtered that if he didn't act that in fact was an action on his part his pacifism was challenged and he said i can't let this go on i have to do something or be willing to do something to stop this atrocity it was actually a pretty genius plan get the leading pacifist pastor to plan an assassination and that he would be the one to assassinate Hitler. So he tried a couple times to assassinate Hitler, but it never worked out where he could actually assassinate Hitler. It, it, it failed for one reason or another. They came to know who he was. They arrested him. He went to jail. Eventually, the Allies, we, we got Germany. It was toppled. It went out that the Jews were now free. During this window, before we were able to move in, many prisoners were executed during that time. Bonhoeffer was one of these prisoners that was executed. The, the reason of bringing this up is that if, during history, when we look at the landscape of history and we look at Christians who have resisted the authorities, often during the era in which they lived, they were in the, the outskirts of the Christian church. If you look at history, it's easy to see that Christians living under Germany were very slow, shamefully slow in responding to the Germans. Those that did resist, they, they were frowned upon. But history shows them to be heroes, that they did the right thing. You go to Israel today, you'll visit Yad Vashem. It's a Holocaust museum. You'll go to the, the, the Garden of the Righteous Nations and you'll walk down this way. And every tree there's a, that's been planted for a family that was a Gentile that put their life on the line to protect the Jews. You'll see the Ten Boom tree. You'll see the Bonhoeffer tree. You'll see these trees that were planted. But there are very few trees in relation to how many Christians existed during that time. And my point is, you guys are going to, where is he going with this? And I may have got a little ahead of myself. But even when you do the right thing, the authority is there. If you resist, there's still a consequence that you'll often pay. History shows it. Tyndale gave his life so that the common people could have the Bible burned at the stake. And so if you find yourself in a nation where you feel that the authorities are infringing on your ability to live for God or to be oh, faithful to God and you reach the conviction that you need to resist, it should come with great trepidation. I think that's a word, right? That's a, I just used a big word. Nice. Don't ask me to spell it. <laughs> Unless I have my computer. 
and I can do it. Um, sorry, guys. We, we, you should recognize that the Bible tells you clearly that you're, if you're resisting the authorities, you're, you're resisting God, that you're going against his, what he says. Now, now, the law in large part is good. The Judges ends with, with, the, with the verse that says, uh, Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and it was a terrible time. If, if we left law and order to individuals, that the only law was is that as you go about your days, you operate how you feel is right in your eyes. Who would volunteer to go out onto our freeways on that day? When it was like, there's amnesty today, live however you want for 24 hours. There will be no repercussions. Just live as you see fit. I would lock myself into my house with a loaded gun ready (laughs) because it wouldn't be good. And so before we start drawing on all these stories of atrocities in history, like we have it pretty good right now in our, in our government. They keep things into perspective, especially, well, let's move on. I think it's difficult for me with this passage because where I want to transition is to those in authority. Like I've spent a lot of time dealing with those of us, which is everyone, under authority. But there are some great lessons for those who are in authority. Whether you volunteer at a community thing or you're a cop or you're a judge or you're an attorney or you're a politician, or there are so many different layers of authority within our culture. And any of us could find ourselves in this role at any time. What are things that we see from this for those who are in authority? Maybe a young person, you want to go to the military, you want to be a cop, or you want to be a judge, an attorney. The Bible speaks to to those of us who are in those roles. And it's in this passage. And so I want to sort of flip the coin over and look uh, from the position of those in authority. So notice verse 3. It says, for rulers are not a cause of fear. A cause of fear are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear from authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Skip down to verse 6. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And so with that passage, I want to sort of start in back, backwards order. The first thing is the one who serves in an authority, like in the system of the authorities, your heart in this should be, I am a public servant. I am here to serve. There are some examples of military people who would function in all of these capacities during Jesus's time. One of them we're not going to go to is Matthew 8 uh, verses 5 through 13. You'll remember this story. They're up by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is coming into town. Word had come that Jesus and his guys were, were going to be entering into town. There was a, a centurion. He was a military leader. He had a servant who was sick. He'd heard about Jesus. He wasn't necessarily Jewish. He was a Gentile, Roman. But he had a heart for the Jews. He'd built their synagogue there. If you go there today, you can see the, the, the foundation is the actual foundation that this guy funded to the Jewish people. He was liked by the Jews. He hears about Jesus, so he sends some of his workers. He says, go tell Jesus that so-and-so is sick and have him heal him. Jesus gets word and says, take me to him. I'll go to him. When, he, when Jesus arrives, the centurion's like, listen, why, why did you come? I'm a man in authority. I know how authority works. I tell so-and-so to go there and you go here and they do it. You have the same authority, greater authority. You could just say, you go here, cast this person from over there. You didn't need to come to my house. And Jesus heals the person. But as he's walking away, he looks at his disciples and he says, you know, in all of Israel, I haven't seen faith like this. 
This is the greatest example of faith I've seen anywhere. And it didn't come from a Jewish person. If there was a place where Jesus scolded to scold somebody in authority, hey, if you're going to be my follower, you've, you've got to, to, to leave this. And the reason I bring this up is because of Romans chapter 12. We just studied about love your enemies, do all of this stuff. And it's very difficult, that last part of Romans chapter 12. Then you come into Romans 13. Uh, many of those that write supporting pacifism would tell you that Romans chapter 12 is for believers. And Romans chapter 13 has nothing to do with believers. This has to do with the authorities. And I have a hard time with this because of this example. Another story is in Luke chapter 3. If you turn with me to Luke, the gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, I actually prefer saying, is he's, he's been baptizing people. He's been challenging them for their sins, publicly naming the sins. It's kind of funny, like as they're coming, they're naming their stuff. One of the leaders, he starts call up, challenging him for his inappropriate relationship. And the guy was kind of intrigued listening to this prophet calling him out. And groups of people came to him and they, they wanted to be baptized. They wanted to do whatever it is they needed to do to repent of their sin. And we see three groups in Luke chapter three, verse 10. The first group we see is the crowds. They were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And he responds, basically, love your neighbor. He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise, to to do unto others. Then we see some tax collectors. And you think you don't like tax collectors today? They hated them worse back then. They had the freedom to do whatever they wanted. If you had a tax collector in your family, you could disown them. If a tax collector asked you questions, the rabbi said you didn't have to answer them truthfully. It was okay to lie to tax collectors. They were hated. And so these tax collectors, they want to repent of their sins. So they go to John the Baptist, baptizer and to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Notice he doesn't say walk away from being tax collectors. He says you can honor God and walk with God and still be a tax collector. In our day, you could still work for the IRS and be a Christian. So that's a newsflash for everybody. You know, that's it's Okay. But look what he says to them. He said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to collect. So, so basically you're told this much. And, and the way it worked then is they were on a commission base. So if you said, hey, you need to go collect five bucks from so-and-so. But if you can get 20 bucks out of them, that $15 on the top, that's yours to keep. We just want the $5. That's how they got paid. And he says, just, just collect what you've been told to collect. Then the third group, the one that stands out to me, is these soldiers. These are soldiers, cops. They're all in one during this era. So some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Do we need to stop being soldiers? Do we need to to lay down our swords? Do we need to turn from what we're doing? And he says three things. He said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. I remember when I was defending my thesis, I made sure to stack the deck that there were people in there that disagreed with me. I, I, don't, I'm a, I, I like pain and suffering. So I didn't want to just slide through my thesis. I wanted to be challenged. And there was a guy there that I referenced this text dealing with present day military. And he said, Oh, this has nothing to do with present-day military and law enforcement. This has everything to do. This is John the Baptist. This is dated material. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, none of, he's like, none of these things apply to soldiers and cops today. And I'm like, wait a minute. Don't take money from anyone by force. Accuse anyone falsely and be content. I'm like, do you know anybody in the military or law enforcement? Like, be content with your wages? This is the most practical thing in the Bible for me at that time for instructions. And so he, he basically says, as you serve in this capacity, do it as one that's under authority. That as you serve in the capacity of law enforcement, you can go back to Romans chapter 13, or military, or any sort of governmental position, 
that you do it understanding that your ultimate authority is God and you're, you're, you're worshiping him, you're loving him as you serve in this capacity. The thing that always gets me about pacifists on this passage, and I love pacifists, and I'm not, I have dear friends who are pacifists. I believe that God uses pacifists or their theology to, to get them into certain places. For example, Michael Nichols, who we support as a church, dear friend of mine. He was, until he moved to Africa, a very staunch pacifist. We would have big arguments in seminary. I thought he was so wrong. But then as I wrote my thesis, my, my, and knowing him, it changed. Because then I interviewed with SIM to go to Africa with my family. And they said, we're sorry, Gunnar, we can't send you anywhere in Africa because of your background. You would be a risk to us to send you to a war-torn country. But if I was a pacifist, I would be perfect there because then I'm not going to be starting little skirmishes on the side. But in the argument of this being to non-believers, notice what it says in verse 4. For it is a minister of God, number one, speaking of the authorities, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword, and the sword is a double-edged sword. The only thing that the sword was used for was taking the life of others. This is speaking of capital punishment, which has never been revoked anywhere in the Bible from Genesis 9, 6, when it was established, to present day. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that capital punishment shouldn't be enforced, but I don't have time to expand on that argument. It does not bear the sword for nothing, meaning that it taking the life of others. For it is a minister of God, number two, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, you can't follow my Bible, but in my Bible, I have this whole thing with a line that points all the way back up to Romans chapter 12, verse 19, what we looked at last week. Let's start in verse 18. Remember the passage that says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The Bible's very clear. There are some people who are just prickly people. They're, they're not happy no matter what. They're always trying to start fight, start fights. Often there are family members. <laughs> Often they're coworkers, friends, neighbors. No matter what you do, they're always at war. And the Bible, what it says, it says, I don't say to be at peace with all people. What it says is so far as it depends on you, you do everything that you can do to be at peace with them. Understanding that you might not be able to have peace with them, but you do your part. If you're still not at peace with somebody, you better have a good check with God that you've done everything in your capacity and you're clear that there's nothing more, no more olive branches Unless that person changes and you're willing to be at peace with that person. But he says, never pay. Okay, then verse 19. Never take your own revenge. Dun, dun, dun. You guys, can you name that tune? People's court, people. Come on. Dun, dun, dun. And then like the so-and-so, so-and-so's car was hit by so-and-so. And they're suing for $2,500. And on the defendant's side, this is so-and-so. They were wrongly hit. Dun, dun, dun. This is what I hear when I read this passage. It's okay to laugh, guys. Never take your own revenge. You take them to court, the people's court. Dun, dun, dun. It's telling you, don't, don't take your own revenge. It says, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. So if somebody wrongs you, and this is a hard pass, a hard truth. It says, if somebody's wronged you, never take your own revenge. Let's just, Father, let's, let's just pray. Father, we do pray for whatever's going on. We pray for those first responders and whatever the situation, for those that they're helping or uh, fires that they're putting out, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon them and that you would uh, just keep all safe who are involved. And that's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so it says here in 19, never take your own revenge. So if you want to take revenge, that means that you've been wrong. We're told to sort of back away, don't take the revenge, but to leave room. Why? Leave room for the wrath of God, that God will have his vengeance. Now, my Bible, I have a line all the way down to verse 4, and we see twice dealing with the authorities. 
It is a minister of God. It is a minister of God speaking to the authorities. And it says it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is the only thing I see in scripture dealing with government and their role. Their role is those who do evil because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We commit crimes upon one another. Some less than others, some more horrific than others. And the government's role is to, uh, to bring wrath on those who do evil, even capital punishment. And as we look at this passage, as we go back to Romans chapter 12, we're able to live in peace in an ideal setting because the government is there creating this safety net so that you can live out your life in a way with peace. Now, what this has to say to the law enforcement officer or the military person is that when you are functioning, you function in Romans chapter 12. When you're bearing the sword and keeping people safe, you're, you have no emotional involvement in the thing. You, you are an agent of the authorities. You shouldn't be personal in crimes. Now, the problem is, is law enforcement military, it gets personal because if you're in war, there are people killing you. If you're on the streets day in and day out, there are people making assaults on you. You're seeing stuff. It's easy to get tainted. But the person in that capacity should understand that God's in control. They have their rule. And it gets difficult because you need to train to, because you need to go home and be safe every night. I'll never forget one Christian cop that he was a pastor and then became a cop. We were like an exact opposite paths. And he said he was sort of wrestling with how do you get in this knockdown, drag out fist fight where you're having to use force to subdue somebody to preserve your life without having like emotional, like what we would define as anger in order to the fight or die sort of mode and he said he was on a ride along as a young officer and this christian officer who comes to our church occasionally i'll say his name dave bishop dave bishop is this like picture of a cop who walks in grace and truth and yet is a fierce fighter and he said i was on a ride along with dave and all of a sudden this druggie who was like violent was a two-strike person basically went after dave and he said that as he saw this unfold he like thought it was going to turn into a lethal use of force it was like a bad fight as he was trying to engage and help and finally they got the guy in cuffs and he was on the thing he knew this would result in a third strike and as soon as dave gets his guy in cuffs he starts going hey brother how you doing you know like you know like starts going through his spiel like evangelizing the guy Tell them about Jesus who loves them. And my other friends looking at Dave going, this is absolutely like, how did he go from just like, I thought he's about to kill the guy. Now he's like just talking to him like he met him over coffee. And the guy's like, yeah, this is my third strike. And is there any way you could get me a smoke? And he's like, yeah, I'll get you a smoke. Where's your smoke? And he's like, in my back pocket. So he, or maybe they're on the hood by this point because they searched him. And he's like, I'm sitting there and there's Dave Bishop, this you know, 50-year-old man, he's got the prison cigarettes where it's the piece of paper and you got to put your own tobacco and roll it like it's a joint and he's licking it on the street like, and then he's like, here you go, bud. And he's like, it was just like for me as a cop coming in trying to figure out how, how do these two worlds fit? It was, I saw everything in that moment. And so for you that are striving to go into law enforcement or the authority, like, you're not acting at your own behalf. Now I'll move on. I'm running short on time. I care a lot about this. Then verse five, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, because they don't bear the sword in vain. If you're doing no good, you're going to pay for it. And for conscience sake, because God has placed the authorities in authority over our, over us. And so if you violate them, you ultimately are violating God. And that should trouble your conscience. If you're a Christian, for because of this, you also pay taxes or the pink, that pink envelope <laughs> for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honor to whom honor 
we, we get all of the rest. We've, we've heard those. I, I do want to make a point on the honor. We live in a culture where respect is not being taught to our children, not to respect authority, not to respect uh, authority being people that are older than you, parents, grandparents, police officers, firemen, politicians, uh, the Senate, Congress, the President of the United States. The Bible makes it very clear that we're to render honor to whom honor is due. That doesn't mean that the person in that place is honorable, but the place in which they sit is honorable. And so we have respect for that seat. The person's a whole other thing. And this, this, guys, I get it. This strikes close to home. And as we submit to God, it should result in a certain things. We live in a great country. Guys, we live in a great country with all sorts of freedom. You should vote. It's sad the percentage of American Christians that don't vote in comparison to those who do. This is our place where we can affect change, so vote. You should be involved in the government, whatever level that God's called you to. And if you're hemming and hawing, like I, it's people say, our government's not what it used to be, and it's horrible, it's going down the tubes, and it's those people that give me the, the greatest flack about how bad our government are, our government is, are the very same people who will refuse to go to Mexico with me. Think about that. They will talk about how bad our government is and how they need to affect change and it's so horrible. But when I say, hey, let's go to Mexico, get a couple tacos, go see some handicapped kids. I'm not going down there. That place is corrupt. It's like, uh maybe we don't have it as bad. I would encourage you all, go to as many third world countries as you can. You'll be fine. I mean, if you're a Christian, you'll be fine because whatever happens to you, you're good to go. (laughs) It's all we have. I mean, you could get in a car accident here. I mean, it's all we have. Where I want to end, and when a pastor says that, it means nothing. But it really does. If you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, if there's anything I could convince you guys of today, I hope it would be this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read, first of all, then I urge you, I urge that entreaties, the NIV says request, the New King James says supplications. I still hear pages turning, so I'll slow down. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First, of all, then I urge you that entreaties, requests, or supplications, depending on your translation, and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness, godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And Father, we do take this word to heart. Lord, I confess that I don't pray for the, the authorities that have been placed over me, Lord, consistently enough. And so, Father, we pray that as we read the newspaper as we watch the news, as we hear conversations about our government in the midst of what's going on. It seems that everybody is unhappy with our government at this present time. And so, Father, as we hear murmurings or we murmur ourselves, as I have this week, which I'm sorry for. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to keep our government and prayer for those who are in authority over us. And Father, I pray that you would help us as American citizens Lord, to know what the balance is, Lord. For we live under an authority that encourages us to speak our opinion, to, to vote our opinion, to get involved. And so, Lord, first we thank you that we do live in this sort of structure. And Lord, as we voice our opinions, as we live out our faith, we pray, Father, that you would help us to 
be honoring to you, to be pleasing to you in our, in our words, in our thoughts, in our heart. We pray that you would help us to find that balance of being in subjection to you and involved with our authorities. Lord, I thank you for the first responders, those that serve day and night around the clock on our behalf, that provide the sense of safety that we feel, that we know that paramedics will come anytime, day or night, if we have a medical problem and will get us to the hospital. We thank you that those in the hospital are there 24-7, ready and waiting for us. We thank you for the law enforcement officers that serve around the clock, for the military serving around the world. We pray, Father, that you would bless them. We pray for those in those capacities who are believers in Christ, that you would use them to be a light for you. Lord, these are interesting times that we live in. We need your wisdom. We pray that you would help us to walk with you um, each day, Lord, faithfully. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's good name.